Awesome. Hey, if you have your Bible, would you meet me in Acts chapter 20? Acts 20. I want to bring you a message this morning with a bit of a funny title. The title of the message today is A Worthlessly Valuable Life. A Worthlessly Valuable Life. As we dive deeper into the scriptures, you'll see what that title means and what we're talking about today. But we're going to be in Acts chapter 20. We're going to be looking at three specific verses today. But before we read from God's word, you know, as a, a pastor, as a preacher, we often go looking for sermon illustrations. Sometimes we'll just see things in our everyday life that pop up as like real life sermon illustrations that played out right in front of us. And I think all of us in life have heard of things where people invested lots of money into something that was popping up and blowing up and becoming even more valuable only for that thing to crash and become pretty much worthless. And I was doing some research for the message today, and as I was looking into different things like that, there was this one common theme or topic or product, if you will, that kept popping up in story after story. And I'm going to use this as a sermon illustration this morning because I think it's helpful. How many people remember, how many of you remember Beanie Babies? In first service, I brought that up, and I was just stunned at how many people were like, oh, yeah, be-. I'm like, really? People were excited? Like, people were into Beanie Babies. And I didn't even realize this. Maybe I was a lot younger when this phenomenon kind of happened. But I was doing some research over the last few days, and this kept popping up, and so I just dug a little bit deeper. And when Beanie Babies blew up as collectibles years and years ago, the founder of that company became worth over $4 billion just because of Beanie Babies. And it was this incredible trading, buying, and selling market that took place where people would buy low, sell high, try to make money on these collectibles known as Beanie Babies. And just saying it sounds silly to me because it's a really ridiculous thing. But people spent like tons and tons of money collecting these things and then later on selling them, only to have them in about 2008, 2009, totally fall off the face of the earth when it came to their value. And there were people who were left kind of holding the bag, if you will, where they spent all this money on these collectibles thinking that that asset would appreciate only to find that it absolutely collapsed. Now, nobody likes it when an investment collapses, but what's crazy about it is the more that I dug and I was reading up on this, there was this one name, this, actually this family, they were a, a, a father and daughter, they were like a team who collected Beanie Babies, and their story kept popping up over and over again when I was doing this research, and stay with me for a minute, because some of you are like, we're going to talk about Beanie Babies today? No, we're going to talk about Jesus, but stay with me. There was this father and daughter team that over the years, collected and amassed an enormous collection of Beanie Babies, so much so that it took over their entire house. But here's what got me. I got to the end of the story, and I learned that this couple, as they are showing all of their Beanie Babies in their house, they confessed that they had spent, in their lifetime, $180,000 on Beanie Babies, most of which were purchased when they were at their top value only to find out all these years later that the $180,000 they spent on Beanie Babies is now worth a fraction of the original price that they paid. And what was crazy about it was I kept thinking, I mean, there's like videos, you can go and find it, right? I'm watching the videos as they're being interviewed about this, and as they told their story, they would just get to the end of the story, and they would say, and how much is it worth now? And they're like, well, we don't really know, but a whole lot less than what we paid. And they would just laugh about it like it was the funniest thing ever, because what I discovered was these people just loved Beanie Babies. 
I don't get it, right? Like, I don't understand. I don't know why you would pour all that money into it. But what was crazy about it was even though they had lost so much, they were filled with so much joy because they had bonded together after all these years of building up this collection. And even though what they had collected is now worth almost nothing, there was so much joy in their heart as they talked about the Beanie Baby Museum that they wanted to open and how maybe they could make some money off of that and how much they love these little toys. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. But I was just absolutely shocked to see that after all these years later, after experiencing so much loss, they still had so much joy in their eyes as they talked about their experience. The reason I tell you that ridiculous story this morning is because I think that for many of us, when we begin our walk with God, we see the value in our salvation. We see the value in God's plan and God's purposes for our lives until we experience some sort of hardship, some sort of difficulty, some sort of loss, or we look at the circumstances around us and we have to stop and ask the question, do I want to continue? And I look at these people who lost so much, having so much joy. I think as Christians, we look at each other sometimes and we can get attached to the things that are happening in the world around us and we can lose our joy so easily. So how do we maintain our joy? How do we get to the end of the race in spite of the discouragement, in spite of the challenges, in spite of the loss? How do we stay the course and finish our race, but not just finish it, finish it with joy? How do we do that? The Apostle Paul tells us how he does it in Acts chapter 20. And just to give you some context to make sure you understand where we're at in the Scripture, at this point in Scripture, from about Acts 16 up to Acts 20, Paul has been on a missionary journey. He starts out in what we know as modern-day Turkey. He makes his way over toward Asia Minor. The Holy Spirit says, stop, don't go. So he changes course, and he begins to move toward Greece. He gets into Greece, and he preaches at Athens, and it's the place where he goes to the Areopagus, and he preaches to all the philosophers, and he talks about the statue of the unknown God. And many people come to Christ, and many people reject Christ. Then he goes on, and we see that he's later thrown in jail, and there's uh, hymns and songs of praise that are given that arise to God. and he supernaturally breaks them out of jail. And then there's a riot later on at Ephesus for all the people who are coming after Paul because he is preaching Jesus. And then God gets him out of that mess. And then suddenly here in Acts 20, Paul says, I think God's calling me to do something different now. I think he's changing my course. I think he's leading me to a new path. And that's where we pick up this story right here. I want to dive deep into three verses of scripture from Acts chapter 20 this morning. Paul says, Acts 20 and verse 22, and see now, I go bound in the spirit. Notice those words. I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me when I get there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations, chains and tribulations Await me. So in other words, what Paul is saying here is I feel like God is calling me to go to a new place to do a new thing. I'm I'm absolutely convinced that's what he wants me to do, but I don't know what's going to happen between here and there or what's going to happen to me once I arrive in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice the words that Paul uses because I'm going to paint a picture for you here to get a better understanding of how well Paul ran his race. He says, I go bound in the Spirit. When you look at the original text here in the original language, when we see that word bound, it's the Greek word, a simple word, deo, D-E-O, three-letter word, deo. And the definition of that word in the original Greek literally means to be bound or tied with chains, ropes, 
or cords. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the purposes of God have consumed me and God's purposes have bound me. I'm tied up. I'm wrapped up in. I am attached to the purposes of God so much so that I have willfully relinquished control and I feel like he is calling me to go somewhere else. I mean, get that picture in your mind of what it means to be bound and tied up. That's what he's saying here. That's the literal definition in words that he uses when talking about what the Spirit of God is doing here. Bound in the Spirit. But we have to understand the Spirit of God. We talk about the Holy Spirit and being led by the Spirit of God. But that word again in the original writings, the word Spirit is pneuma. And pneuma, the best understanding that we have in our English-speaking minds is the breath or wind of God. We see air as this picture of pneuma, the spirit of God, that spoken breath and voice and wind, the air that comes from God. Now, of course, we know that the spirit of God is a person, not just a feeling or an emotion. It's not just wind or air or breath. The spirit of God, he is a person. But in understanding this, what Paul's literally saying here is, I'm bound, I'm tied up, I'm attached to the Spirit of God, which is moving me, which is pushing me, which is directing me in this direction. And I don't know what's in front of me, but I'm okay to relinquish control because I know that it's the Spirit of God that is taking me to Jerusalem. Now, in order to better understand like the Spirit of God here, I want to just throw this at you. I didn't talk about this in first service, but when we see that word pneuma, I don't know if you guys are familiar with pneumatic tools. It's air-powered tools, right? So when I was growing up, my grandfather was a mechanic. And my grandpa taught me when I was in high school how to change the brakes on my car. Some of you, that scares the living daylights out of you that your spouse, that your husband would change the brakes on your car. You're like, surely we are all bound to die tomorrow. <laughs> but my grandfather taught me how to do it. And I remember telling me, okay, what you want to do first, son, is you want to, you know, you, you want to take the lug nuts there off of the wheel and take the tires off after we've gotten the car jacked. And I remember walking over and looking for a lug wrench. And as soon as I start looking for the lug wrench, my grandpa goes, like that sound that you hear at the tire. That was a really weird sound. Some of you are like, say that again. That really weird sound you hear at the tire shop. Because I turn around and while I'm looking for a lug wrench, he's wheeling over an air compressor. And so he takes the air compressor, he gets that pneumatic tool, plugs it into the compressor, and pulls the lug nuts off of the wheel a whole lot quicker than I could have done it with a lug wrench. Anybody know where I'm going with this? There are things that the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through your life that are greater than you can do in your own strength. And Paul recognizes this. He says, I've willfully relinquished control. I am bound up. I am tied up. I am fully attached to the purposes of God's spirit in the earth. And I don't know what's going to happen in front of me, but I know that God's plan is better than mine. Now, I want to draw a contrast for you in Paul's writing, or excuse me, in Paul's words here, in the way that it's written. When he goes on talking about what's going to happen to him next, he says, I don't know what will happen in verse 23, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city saying that chains and tribulations, tribulations there literally means to be hard-pressed, hardships, chains and tribulations await me. Now, that word chains stood out to me because when I understood what the word bound meant, it's that Greek word deo. If you actually look at the word change, it's the word desmos. And that's the root word, deo. So he's painting a contrasting picture. I am bound to the Holy Spirit. And if I go, I don't know what's going to happen as I pursue Jerusalem. It's possible that they might try to come and bind me with chains or arrest me and take me to jail. And I love this picture because Paul is saying, here's the deal. 
Even though I might not know what's in front of me, I'm not afraid of it because I'm so bound up to the Holy Spirit that even if they bind me with chains, I will not be stopped. What a beautiful picture and contrasting picture that Paul paints here. And he helps us to understand what it means to be led by the Spirit of God, where we relinquish control, we allow ourselves to be wrapped up, attached, and bound to the purposes of God, and that drives out fear from our lives. And we're going to keep talking about that. But Paul knew that he was bound to the Holy Spirit, and God's purpose in his life was greater than any purpose that he could create for himself. But here's the deal. After reading through this passage carefully, it occurred to me That for many of us, our testimony is the opposite of Paul's. Paul says, I'm bound in the Spirit, so I will go and do what God wants me to do, no matter what the cost. See, I think for a lot of us, we become so easily bound to the cares of this world that we can't be detached and bound to God's purposes for our life. So if Paul says, I'm bound in the Spirit, I think that if I'm just being very honest with you, I'm not pointing the finger like, this is me too. There are times in my life where my testimony has been different. I am bound to my emotions, so therefore I'm going to go wherever they take me. I am bound to the cares of this life, so therefore my mood is going to be dependent on how I feel today and what's happening to me and around me. I am bound to my mind, to my will, and to my emotions, and I don't care what God wants for me today because all I'm focused on is how I feel in the right here and the right now. Sometimes that's our testimony, and it's the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is saying. I want to take some time today and talk through how it is that we walk victoriously through the race of life and do it with joy, overcoming the circumstances around us. So I want to ask you a few questions. If you're taking notes this morning, here's the first question. Number one. What are you bound to? Or, what's binding you? Paul says, I'm bound in the Holy Spirit. I'm tied up. I'm attached to. And I'm going to follow where he takes me. But maybe today you feel bound to something else. Maybe you feel tied, wrapped up, attached to something else. And it's holding you back. I wrote down just a few sub-questions today. And these were my other thoughts. Do the cares of this life seem to be outweighing God's purposes for your life? Do you feel that way? Am I willing to move when God says to move? Am I willing to go when God says to go? God said, Paul, I want you to go to Jerusalem, and the Spirit of God was taking him that way. But had he not been wrapped up in the Spirit of God, then it's very possible he could have looked at the danger and looked at the circumstances and says, I'm not going to go. And his fear could have overwhelmed what God What did him to do? Speaking of which, do my fears outweigh my faith? Do my fears outweigh my faith? Now, faith and fear. That's a conversation that we've been having a lot over the last two years in our world. Last two and a half years. We've been talking a whole lot about it in the church. And sadly, we live in a world where when things got crazy two and a half years ago, it seemed as though our world chose fear over faith. And because fear became a loud voice, our faith was dictated to by the voices that we chose to listen to around us rather than going to God's word. And sadly, that hit the church in a lot of ways. We backed off and we said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm going to listen to what the experts say. I'm going to listen to this. I'm going to listen to that. And even though we thought we might have been using wisdom, what we found is that we were giving in to the spirit of fear. It happened all around us in the world and even in the church. 
And I'm not saying that to be derogatory. I'm not saying it to point the finger. But what I'm saying is our faith was tested and it came in a test from the spirit of fear that confronted us over the last two and a half years. And as Christians, we have to understand that if we want to overcome fear with faith, we have to make the decision that we will be bound by the Spirit of God and not be bound by the circumstances of life. Is everybody with me this morning? As Christians, if we want to overcome fear with faith, we have to choose to be bound to the Spirit of God and not be bound to the circumstances or the very loud voices around us in this world. All right, some people are excited about that. But listen... Sometimes when we start to have that conversation about faith and fear, one of the things that happens is people ask the question, okay, pastor, I understand there's fearfulness that's out there. There's the spirit of fear that's out there. And I want to overcome that with faith. But what about reason? What about logic? What about wisdom? What about listening? What about caution? What about safety? And I understand that. And can I just tell you something today? There's a big, big difference between faith and foolishness. There's a big difference between faith and foolishness. And sometimes finding that balance between faith and foolishness can be difficult. But let me just give you a couple things to think about. God calls Paul into the unknown. I don't know what awaits me except chains and tribulations. That's all I know. It could be worse. In fact, we saw that Paul goes on and lives actually like another 10 years after this. But sometimes God calls us into the unknown. And we have to look at it and say, okay, I'm afraid of what's out there. There's something that's out there that scares me a little bit. How do I know if I'm supposed to take this step of faith? Is this faith or is this foolishness? Two things that I've learned over the years is that when you are bound to the Spirit of God, you will look into the unknown and you will go with confidence, not with hesitance. And if there's any sense of hesitance in your spirit, just stop and ask the question, okay, God, is this you? I don't want to step off and do something foolish. I want to do this knowing that you're in it. So I don't want to be hesitant I want to be confident. And if we can do that, what will happen is we'll look at the unknown and we won't see it fearfully. We'll see it faithfully. I don't know my next step, but here's what I do know. God told me to take it. And if I know that much, that's all I need to know. If I know that God told me to go, then I'm willing to take that step. Where's it going to lead? I'm not quite sure, but I'm going to follow the Spirit of God. And you'll always have that peace right here, no matter what's happening around you. Why? Because I'm wrapped up. I'm bound, I'm tied to, I'm attached, I'm consumed, I'm compelled by the Spirit of God that is leading me forward, that is pushing me forward into his plan for my life. You know, 2 Timothy, we we quote this passage of Scripture all the time. 2 Timothy 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if you look at the future that you feel like God is calling you to, and if fear is overwhelming you, you've got to stop and detach yourself from the voices you might be listening to. Wrap yourself up in the Spirit of God and let him lead you forward. So Paul keeps going and he says, I'm bound to the Spirit of God. And there's nothing that's going to hold me back from pursuing God's call for my life. But look what he says next. He goes on in verse 24. And this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time today in this verse. He says, but none of these things move me. The chains, the tribulations... They don't move me. I'm not moved by this. The things that I could be afraid of are not the things that are moving me. Watch. Nor do I count my life dear to myself. Important words. Nor do I count my life dear to who? To myself. The NIV actually says here, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I want to ask you another question this morning if you're taking notes, and it's quite simple. It's just this. Number two. 
What is the value of your life? What is the value of your life? Paul says, God's calling me this way. There might be chains. There might be tribulations. I don't know if it's going to be any worse than that, but I'm willing to go. He's counting the cost and saying, it's worth it. What's the value of your life? Maybe I should ask it this way. What is my life, what is your life worth? You know, in America, we live in a a capitalist society, a capitalist economy. And what we say is that the value of something is determined by the price that someone else is willing to pay to acquire it. The value of something is determined by the price that someone else is willing to pay to acquire it. So let me ask it this way. What is your life worth to God? That's an important question. Because sometimes we only see our own lives through the lens of what we can get out of it. And we value according to what we can attain, what we can build, what we can invest and amass. And listen, that's okay and that's all good. But if that's all that we define our lives by, we might be missing the point. The better question is, what is your life worth to God? Well, if the answer to that question is value is determined by the price that someone else is willing to pay to acquire it, let me tell you what God paid to acquire you. God gave his only son, his sinless, spotless son, when he looked down and saw you and saw me lost in our sin. He said, because of that sin, there's this gap, there's this gulf, there's this this space between us that's got to be filled, it's got to be crossed. And God looks down and he says, I love you so much that while you are lost in your sin, I will send my very best, my son, Jesus, who will come, who will be divinely conceived, who will be born into a manger under the lowest of circumstances. He will go live a sinless, spotless, perfect life. He will lay down his life, dying the death that I deserve and that you deserve for our sin. And when he laid his life down, if we would put our faith in that sacrifice, we can cross that bridge to come back into relationship with God. While I was a mess, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. When God looked down and saw me in that condition, at my very worst, he reached out, grabbed his very best, and sent it so that he could come back into relationship with me. Can I tell you something, my friends? That is how much God loves you. That is the the determination of your value. What is my life worth? It's worth the price that someone else is willing to pay to acquire it. And that was the price that God paid to acquire your life through salvation. Wow. What an incredible price. So, chains, tribulations, loss, hurt, circumstances, all of these things are prices that I might have to pay in this life. But Paul looks up and says, hold on, take all of that and compare it to the price that God paid to bring me into relationship with him. And suddenly, it puts a whole new twist on it where I begin to understand that all the stuff that I use to value my life is totally worthless and meaningless in comparison to the price that God paid to bring me back into relationship. Now that, my friends, is the revelation that Paul got when he looked at his own life and said, I consider my life worth nothing to me because he recognized that his life already meant so much to God. See, sometimes we see that where it says... 
I count my life as meaning nothing to me. It's, it's worthless to me. And some people might walk into the room today and say, Zach, are you saying that my life is worthless, that it doesn't mean anything? Oh, no. Just the opposite. Your life is worth so very much, so much so that God gave Jesus to come back into relationship with you. But whatever you might be using right now to define the value and the worth of your life is a really, really short measuring stick compared to what God gave. And Paul has that revelation where he says, if something happens, chains, tribulation, even death, how could that even compare to what God has already done to bring me back into relationship with him? What's the value of your life? What God was willing to pay to bring you back into relationship. In Philippians, Paul kind of expands on this, and I want to read to you two very familiar passages, two verses, I should say, from Philippians chapter 3. He says in verse 7, but what things were gain to me, my earthly gains, the things that I could amass and make for myself, the things that I could build for myself, these I have counted loss for Christ. So look at the contrast. Gain for me was loss for Christ. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, there's nothing that I could attain or amass in this life that compares in value to the unsurpassable knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. But look at how he finishes this out right here. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and watch these words, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. Now, if you look at the word rubbish, I think we all know that rubbish is synonymous with trash or garbage. Everything I could ever gain for myself in life, I take it and I compare it to loss. It's trash, it's rubbish, it's garbage. But if you go back in the original writings or if you look at a King James Bible, it doesn't say rubbish. It says dung. Everything I could make for myself, everything I've ever gained in this life, I count it as dung. Compared to the knowledge, the all-surpassing knowledge of Jesus Christ. We could use a lot more harsh terms to describe that word. When you get up in the morning and you go and you pull out in the driveway and you notice that your inconsiderate neighbor has left, their dog has left a deposit in your front yard. That's what Paul is comparing to everything he amassed for himself in this life compared to the knowledge of Christ. Paul says, when you go out into nature and you see that the native animals have left something on the ground that you didn't happen to see and you stepped right in it, that is what he is comparing everything he ever gained in life to the all-surpassing knowledge of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul says, that stuff that you would flush down the toilet, that is what I use to compare to everything I ever gained in my whole life in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I know some of you hear that and you're like, wow, that's kind of explicit. Yeah, well, that's what Paul said. I didn't make it up. And the point is, Paul got this revelation that I can't create anything for myself in this life that makes my life any more valuable compared to the price that God paid to bring me back into, into relationship through redemption. Incredible revelation that Paul has. So we get to the end of verse 24 in Acts 20, and look what he says next. Why do I have to take on this mindset? so that I may finish my race with joy. Everybody say joy. That I may finish my race with joy. I think sometimes when we think about God's calling for our life, God's purposes for our life, 
we think about any kind of hardship we might have to face, any kind of difficulty we might have to face, we're like, man, that sounds so discouraging. I'm going to get to the end of the fight, and I'm just going to be like, God, take me home now. Paul's like, no. I might have to walk through difficulty, but here's the deal. I'm going to do it with joy. I'm going to do this with a sense of joy on the inside that overcomes anything that might be happening to me on the outside. So here's the third and final question I want to ask you today, and we're going to talk a little bit more about this in depth. Number three, are you running your race joyfully or drained? Are you running your life, your life, (laughs) are you running your race joyfully or drained? One of the things I've come to understand over the years is that sometimes we misunderstand what joy is. Sometimes, even as Christians, we mistake joy for happiness. Joy and happiness are two totally different things. In fact, I really love the way that Pastor Corey teaches this to our students. So if you have a student that's at Bridge Youth, they're doing a really good job of getting this into your students' hearts, okay? There's a huge difference between joy and happiness. And a lot of us will live our lives according to how happy or how sad I am today compared to yesterday or tomorrow. And that can change from one day to the next. Because happiness is an emotion that's contingent on what's happening around me, my mood, my circumstances, my feelings, and everything that's going on around me. But joy, my friends, is a whole different thing. Scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. It's the second one that's mentioned. Paul's saying, I am wrapped up, I am bound to the Spirit of God, and even though I'm facing difficult circumstances, there is a joy that's bubbling up on the inside of me. Why? Because I ain't bound to my emotions, I'm not bound to my circumstances, I'm bound to the Spirit of God, and day by day by day, he's producing joy in my life that cannot be overcome by the circumstances around me. And he talks about running this race with joy. See, when my life is detached from the Spirit of God, my mind, my will, and my emotions become attached to my circumstances, and my happiness is attached to those things, and they come and they go, and each day is different. And you walk into me, and you don't know what you're going to get. I might be good, I might be bad, it's all according to my emotions, and it's all according to my circumstances. But Paul says, nope, I'm going to finish my race And I'm going to finish it with joy because the Spirit of God is at work inside of me. I'm bound to him. I'm attached to him. And I'm going to get through these circumstances. They're not going to change me. Are you running your race joyfully or drained? Can I tell you something today, my friends? If your day-to-day life is dependent on your emotional happiness, there's a good possibility that you're having a hard time getting through the race with joy. And you might feel drained and you might find like yourself looking back to God every single day and saying, God, I need to feel better. I need my emotions to change. And God says, you need to start wrapping your life. Get bound to me and to my Holy Spirit and I will produce joy inside of you that cannot be overcome by the things that are happening around you. You living joyfully? Are you running your race with joy? Or are you feeling drained? I think there's a reason why even Nehemiah way back in the Old Testament knew that the joy of the Lord is our Strength. Because even on the days that I feel weak, I find strength in knowing that God's doing something inside of me. I'm bound to him. He's taken me where he wants me to go. And I'm not going to be overwhelmed by what's going on around me. In closing this morning, when I was 19, I started doing my very first ministry schooling. And I decided that I was going to do a discipleship training school with an organization called Youth with a Mission, or more commonly known as YWAM. So I went and I did this 
ministry school for five months, and then the schooling culminates in the sixth month with a missions trip. And me and about 12 or so other classmates went on a month-long missions trip to China. And it was one of the most life-changing experiences I've ever had. It was incredible. The stuff that I got to see and experience just right there in front of me in a, a place that was so far away and so different from home here in America. And we did all kinds of crazy things, <laughs> all kinds of crazy things. We were doing daily border crossings where we had bags and backpacks just filled with Bibles that were translated into native Chinese languages, which is essentially contraband and illegal. So basically, I told first service, I hate using the word, but we were smuggling Bibles into China. <laughs> and that's what we did. It was missions work, and we got there, and we partnered with other partners there who would take it. And we got to meet with these underground church leaders there in mainland China, and it was absolutely incredible. And I remember our school leaders telling us that we were going to be able to meet these church leaders, and we heard all these stories of persecution, imprisonment, um, torture. We heard stories of you know, people being arrested and thrown into jail, never to be heard from again without trial. I mean, those kinds of stories. And I couldn't relate to that. I didn't understand it. And so I thought that by the time we went to meet with these underground church leaders, that by the time we saw them and heard their story, that they would kind of show up like these shadowy figures who were afraid to be seen meeting with us, who, you know, they were worried that they were being watched or surveilled or whatever. And we got there to meet with these guys, and the look of happiness and joy that overwhelmed them blew me away. Because I'm thinking, you guys live your lives kind of on the down low so that you don't get caught spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ because people are literally being persecuted. I mean, in America, we think that we're persecuted. Nothing compared to what they face. And I was going there thinking, man, this is going to be crazy. They're probably going to be afraid to be seen with us. Instead, they come out with such joy in their hearts and joy in their eyes. And they would look at us like, wow, what a privilege that you guys are doing this and partnering with us. And they were just blown away. They were so happy to see us. I remember we finished our schooling, and I got done, and I got back from my missions trip, and I called my dad, and I said, well, I'm home. I got back into the States. I was going to be coming back to California in a few days, and my dad says to me, so what did you learn? What, what, what's next? What are you going to do? And I said, well, I know two things. Number one, I'm pretty sure that God has called me to ministry. But number two, I am positive that I do not want to be a missionary. So I came back to California, finished that part of my schooling, and one of my school leaders who had been a, a friend to me and very influential during that time calls me up one day and says, Zach, are you going to come back for the second round of schooling here? And I said, no, I don't think I'm going to do it. And he said, why not? And I said, because I'm afraid that God's going to call me to be a missionary if I come back, and I don't want to be a missionary. I'll never forget he said this to me. He said, well, sometimes when God calls you to, or sometimes if there's something in front of you that you don't want to do, that's usually a sign that God is calling you to do that. I don't believe that. <laughs> that doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of life where we have to do things we don't like to do. We will. Some of us can think about the things that we've got to deal with right now that we don't want to deal with. The stuff that we have to do that we don't want to do. There's going to be seasons of life where we have to do things we don't want to do. But I don't believe that God calls you to give your whole life to something that's not going to produce joy inside of you. Jesus said, for this cause I was born. When he gets to Gethsemane, he suffers and he sweats like blood. And he knows he's walking into his most difficult hour, but he didn't give up. Why? For the joy set before him, Jesus knew what his purpose was. He just had to go through something really difficult. 
Paul says, I'm bound to the Spirit of God, and it's taking me to Jerusalem. There might be chains and there might be tribulations, but I'm going to finish my race with what? With joy, because I know this is God's purpose for my life. As I sat there and thought about it, I wrestled with that question for a long time. God, I don't know what you want me to do, because if I respond to this call of ministry, are you going to call me to do something I don't want to do? can't tell you how many people have asked me that question. Is God going to call me to do something I don't want to do? I think God's going to call you to do something that's going to be absolutely fulfilling in your life. But it doesn't mean you're not going to have to deal with some difficult circumstances. But how do we get through it? How do we run our race and complete it with joy? We detach ourselves from every other circumstance, every emotion, every voice, every feeling that will defeat us and discourage us. And we let ourselves be wrapped up and bound to the Spirit of God who will lead us forward, help us overcome any circumstance in front of us, and lead us into his purpose for our lives. Amen. 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 Can we give God praise this morning? Father, I thank you so much that you still speak to us. I thank you that you use your word to speak to us, but your Holy Spirit gently nudges us in the direction you're calling us to go. Father, I pray for people in the house today who might be surrounded by circumstances right now that aren't easy, that are difficult, whether it's loss, whether it's discouragement, hurt, pain, fear, something that's popped up against them. I pray that you would encourage them and that we would make the decision to detach ourselves from anything that might discourage us and allow ourselves to be bound by the Spirit of God because you want to lead us into your best for our lives. God, I pray that you would encourage people today to turn to you, to look to you, and to allow themselves to be bound up in your purposes for for themselves. God, that we would be willfully bound to you, relinquishing control, and allowing you to lead us into your best for our lives. With heads bowed and eyes closed, we're going to be done here in just a moment. A moment ago, we talked about what is your life worth? What's the value of your life? We said that value is determined by the price that someone is willing to pay to acquire something. We talked about the price that God paid to come into relationship with us, to come back into relationship with us. If you're here today and you've never made a decision to allow God to come into your life, become the Lord of your life. You've never crossed that bridge that he laid out for you in Jesus so that you could know him. I want to invite you to do that today. It's nothing magical or mystical or anything weird or strange. It's simply believing in your heart and the sacrifice that Jesus made, confessing with your mouth that you want to come back into relationship with him, choosing to follow him so that he can become the Lord of your life. We're going to pray a prayer here in just a moment. This is a house full of people that have prayed this prayer at some point in their lives. I want you to know that today you're not alone if you want to pray this prayer. You're not doing it by yourself because we want to encourage you and pray this prayer with you. So in just a moment, I'm going to ask if you would repeat these words after me. It's not about magic words. It's about the belief in your heart and the confession of your mouth. So would you wrap your heart around these words and say it right out loud after me. Say, Jesus, I thank you for going to the cross for me. I believe you are the Son of God. And I believe that your death was full payment for my sin. So today I choose you to become the Lord of my life and to be my Savior. I will follow you all the days of my life into eternity. Thank you for receiving me. In Jesus' name, amen.
Amen. Now, in this moment, maybe you made that decision. This is an important moment, as good, big as any decision you could ever make in your life. We just want to help you start and walk with God. We want to give you a free gift. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's a simple book that will help you get started in this journey of faith. There's a couple of different ways that you can get it. Right after service, we're going to have prayer teams right down here near the front of the stage. Just walk up to one of our prayer teams. We're not going to embarrass you. They're just every ordinary, everyday ordinary people who are here to help in any way that they can. Just walk up, let them know you made a decision to follow Christ and you want to get the book. We'll give it to you and help you get started in your walk with God. And if you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. We want to help you start your journey of faith. We're so glad that you made that decision. And if you do need someone to pray with you, to agree with you, to encourage you, come see one of our prayer teams. That's why they are here. All right, so take advantage of that because that's why they're here, to serve you and to pray with you. We're glad you made that decision. Hey, congratulations. Can we put our hands together and welcome people into God's family this morning? Awesome. Hey, very last thing today, we're just going to take a moment to honor God by bringing our tithes and our offerings into his house. And this is something that we do as a willful act of worship. And I want to take a moment and say thank you so much for your generosity and for your faithfulness and giving. You know, we say this phrase all the time, but I don't ever want it to become something that we lose the value of. We know that the ministry goes forward because of a faithful God and faithful people. And we choose to partner together. We honor God with our tithe and bring our offerings into his house. And God takes what we, what we do, what we bring, and sees to it that the ministry goes forward. And that's happening here locally in the Temecula Valley plus around the world through our partnerships. And we're so grateful because you are a generous church and we know that partnering together allows us to do so much more. So there's a few different ways on the screen that you can give. If you'd like to go ahead and do that today, digitally you can give those options on the screen. If you want to give an in-person physical gift, there are envelopes there on your seat backs. You can just grab one, fill it out, and uh, choose whichever way is most convenient for you. You can drop it at one of our giving stations. There's two giving stations right before you exit the auditorium. There's also one outside near the kids' first-time check-in area. So again, thank you so much for your generosity. We recognize that you are a faithful people, a very, very faithful church. Hey, we love you so much. Last thing I want to tell you is that that you have a student, uh, whether that's one of your children, a grandchild, someone in your life who's interested in going to Bridge Youth Summer Camp. We still have some spots available for students. This is 6th through 12th grade to go to Bridge Youth Summer Camp this summer, which is happening later this month. Come and see us at our table outside. You can come see Pastor Corey or Amber and they'll tell you all about it, but we want you to know about that because we do have a few spots still available, okay? Hey, I hope that you've been blessed being in church today. We love you so much, church family. Have an awesome week, and we will see you next Sunday morning.